Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. And we just heard Michael uh, Michael Hill at the end of the newscast there play an excerpt from our Martin Luther King weekend event at the Apollo Theater yesterday. Um, Now we're going to play another one because I did an interview that was originally um, for that event. And we're going to air it here. The guests, as you will hear, are Richard and Leah Rothstein, experts and activists in the area of housing segregation. And talking to the Rothsteins was very timely, given the barriers to affordable housing that we've been talking about a lot on this show recently with respect to our local area. So here is my interview for the Martin Luther King weekend event at the Apollo Theater with Richard and Leah Rothstein. Hello, Apollo. I am here with Richard and Leah Rothstein, father and daughter. Their passion and expertise is fighting housing segregation. Richard is a distinguished fellow at the Economic Policy Institute think tank and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and well known for his 2017 book about the history of official housing segregation and discrimination called The Color of Law. Leah has led the Alameda County, California, and San Francisco Probation Department's research project on reforming community corrections policy to be focused on rehabilitation, not punishment. She has also been a consultant to nonprofit housing developers, cities and counties, and others on affordable housing policy and finance. And together now, Richard and Leah Rothstein are co-authors of a book called Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. So Richard and Leah, thanks for doing this and welcome virtually to the Apollo Theater. Thank you. Thank you. Leah, um, on the title of your father's book, I will give you the privilege of describing his book to everybody else, The Color of Law. Would it be right to say that that title, that phrase has kind of a double meaning? Certainly. So the book is, it takes on this notion of de facto segregation, the idea that basically that the law is colorblind, that we are segregated as a society by accident or by personal preference or private actions, that the government had nothing to do with it. And the color of law took on that idea, uh, basically debunked it, called it an utter myth. Um, by brutally laying out sort of all of the government policies that went into intentionally creating a segregated society. So the fact that the law is colorblind is also a myth. Um, The color of law explains how, um, you know, local, state, federal policy took intentional actions, unconstitutional actions, to ensure that whites and blacks lived apart from each other. And this wasn't just in the South. Richard, I saw a New York example that you wrote about in the New York Times just a few years ago that described how the New York State Legislature amended its insurance code in 1938 to permit the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company to build large housing projects, quote, for white people only. I think that was in the language somehow. You tell me. First, Park Chester in the Bronx, which a lot of uh, our listeners 
on the radio or audience members at the Apollo know, applaud if you're from Parkchester, and then Stuyvesant Town in Lower Manhattan. Want to tell our audience a little bit about that story? Well, sure. The uh, The insurance company wanted to build those uh, projects. Uh, MetLife, uh, the president of MetLife testified that he would not rent to African-Americans in these projects. But in order to go ahead with the projects on that basis, or on any basis, really, he needed uh, authorization from the state legislature. He needed city involvement, as you know, in a project like that. You need to condemn land. There needs to be lots of involvement in the city to permit such a project to go forward and to allow it to assemble the land. So this was not a private development in any meaningful sense uh, without government participation and endorsement of a segregated, exclusive white community, it could not, neither of those projects could have gone forward. And that's a very small example of the kinds of uh, policies that were followed all over the country to create segregation by government. Had the state legislature, had the city of New York followed their constitutional responsibilities, they would have had to insist that the MetLife uh, rent apartments in those two projects on a non-discriminatory basis but they failed in their constitutional responsibilities. Now, Richard, since this is our Martin Luther King weekend event, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Dr. King's activism specifically on the topic of housing segregation. I'm thinking perhaps as an example that I think you were involved in of his work in Chicago in 1966. And I'll say by way of historical context, Though a lot of our audience members know this, this is two years after the Civil Rights Act was passed, ending official Jim Crow segregation, at least on paper, in the South. But then he and his family, and maybe you, moved to Chicago to make a point? Well, I was already in Chicago at that time and, and was privileged to be part of that campaign. Uh, Reverend King understood that housing segregation underlay the most serious segregation in all other fields. Uh, housing segregation is responsible for uh, disparities of outcomes in schools for children because you concentrate the most disadvantaged, uh, low-income African-Americans in single schools. They're overwhelmed by their social and economic problems. Housing segregation underlies health disparities uh, between African-Americans and whites because so many black people live in less healthy neighborhoods, more pollution, less access to fresh food. In fact, housing segregation also underlies a good part of the explanation of the police abuse of young African-American men that we spent so much time demonstrating against in 2020. When you concentrate the most disadvantaged young men in single neighborhoods where they have no access to jobs, no access to transportation to get to good jobs, no access to schools that aren't overwhelmed by concentrated poverty. It's inevitable that the police are going to engage in confrontations with them to keep them under control. So Reverend King understood this, and he determined to campaign uh, using Chicago as his primary example for open housing, for non-discrimination in housing. He planned marches and undertook marches uh, through white suburban and inner ring suburbs to demonstrate for open housing suburbs that excluded African-Americans. They resulted in violence against him and against uh, his marchers. And uh, that's the reason he came to Chicago. And Leah, to continue with the history, then came the 1968 Fair Housing Act, 
one of the responses, I think we can accurately say, to the assassination of Dr. King and the outcries that followed. And that, again, at least on paper, outlawed discrimination in the sale and rental of housing. But we know how much housing segregation there still is today. So what would you say did and did not flow from the 1968 Fair Housing Act? Well, outlawing discrimination in the sale of rental of housing is essential, but like you said, it's on paper. So the the enforcement of that law has to be taken into consideration and it's not very well enforced. So there's an example from 2019, not that long ago in Long Island, the Long Island Newsday paper did an expose where they sent testers uh, potential um, home buyers of different races with uh, identical financial qualifications to realtors all over the Long Island area and to see how they were treated, if they were treated differently by race. And in 50% of the cases, the African-American testers were given less, um, fewer options of homes that were available were steered towards um, same race neighborhoods. So this idea that the Fair Housing Act itself out, you know, ended discrimination is not true. We have to continue to enforce that that discrimination isn't happening, both by realtors, by governments. You know, it's constantly having to be litigated and enforced to ensure that um, discrimination doesn't continue. And that's one piece of it. The other piece is that the Fair Housing Act outlawed future discrimination, which is important, obviously essential, but it didn't do anything to address the disparities that already exist based on, you know, as a result of decades and decades of government policy that created segregation. So you can't just say that we will no longer discriminate in the future and expect segregated patterns to disappear. You know, the uh, one big result of segregated communities is a wealth gap that we see between black and white households. African-American households have about 5% of the wealth of average white households. 5% of the wealth, that's a huge disparity. So when you say everyone has equal access to buy this home, but white families have access to so much more intergenerational wealth to be able to afford it, and African-Americans don't because of past government policy that kept them out of home ownership when it was affordable and would have allowed them to build up wealth that way. So the Fair Housing Act is an important piece, but we have to also address you know, all of the consequences um, that we're living with today if we want to truly desegregate and provide equal access to housing. So Leah, your new book together is called Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. So I'll bite on the how-to. Where do you start? Well, what we argue in Just Action is that we need to reactivate the civil rights movement to take on this issue of residential segregation. The civil rights movement did a lot to desegregate public spaces, but it fell short of desegregating our communities. So in order to do that, we need to start by building biracial, multi-ethnic committees, groups in our own communities that are ready to take on these issues. Now, we understand that you know, federal policy played a large role in creating the segregation that we live with today. But once created, to a large extent, it's maintained and perpetuated by local policies. So these biracial multi-ethnic groups, once they're formed, there's a lot they can do in their own communities, challenging local policies, adopting local programs, um, pressuring local institutions and corporations to live up to their obligations to remedy the segregation they helped to create. So there, the book Just Action that we wrote has dozens and dozens of examples of these local actions and policies that groups can take on. 
Um, they fall into two main categories, those that are concerned with increasing investments in lower income segregated African American communities, and those that are concerned with opening up exclusive, expensive, predominantly white communities to more diverse residents. All of these strategies are essential. And, and Richard, I know you've written extensively on segregation in education as well. And here in New York, I'm not sure under Mayor Adams, you can comment on the current administration if you want, but under Mayor de Blasio, he used to say he wouldn't do much explicitly about segregated schools because segregated schools are basically a function of segregated housing, where kids live. So he wanted to focus on that and hoped it would trickle down to school descent. I wonder how much you agree or disagree with that as a tactic. Well, I fully agree with that. Uh, that is the reason, primary reason that we have segregated schools is because of segregated neighborhoods. It's actually a little bit less true in Manhattan and other densely populated areas of New York City, where you actually can draw school attendance boundaries in a way that would create more uh, neighborhood schools that were uh, not segregated. But in much of the country, that's not possible. In most, almost all of the country, that's not possible. Uh, you'd have to subject children to long bus rides away from home, take away the ability of parents to participate in their local schools, uh, in the schools that their children attend. If you did that, uh, what we need are, are desegregation of neighborhoods so that schools can become diverse and not overwhelmed with concentrated poverty and concentrated disadvantage. This is actually how I came to, to write the, the book, The Color of Law. Uh, in 2007, the Supreme Court prohibited the school districts of Louisville and Seattle from embarking on a very token school desegregation plan because they recognized that school segregation was a uh, not advantageous to the achievement of black children. And uh, the Supreme Court prohibited them from doing it. And Chief Justice John Roberts wrote uh, his opinion uh, prohibiting this very token plan. It was a school choice plan. It wasn't mandatory. Uh, he wrote an opinion saying that the schools in Louisville and Seattle were segregated because the neighborhoods were segregated by private activity only. Government had no role in doing it. And I realized from my reading in the past that uh, the, these were segregated by government. The, the example I gave in, in, just, in, in The Color of Law about Louisville is a white homeowner in a suburb of Louisville who sold a home to an African-American in his community. And the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year jail sentence. The white homeowner for sedition for having sold a home to a black family in a white neighborhood. And this was well known. This is no secret from Chief Justice John Roberts. The notion that government had nothing to do with the segregation of, of Louisville or Seattle is, is mendacious. And Salia, last question. I want to end by tying your book to the news of just this past week here in New York and New Jersey, where Governors Kathy Hochul and Phil Murphy made affordable housing centerpieces of their state of the state addresses. And yet we see fierce resistance to affordable housing construction, especially in the mostly white suburbs just outside the city. Uh, and that particular resistance sank Hochul's housing bills from last year, I guess because they believe lower income people, disproportionately black and Latino people, 
uh, compared to who lives there now will bring crime and other social problems, or maybe they just don't want to live around people who are different from them. We don't know yet if anything will get passed this year. But again, going back to the subtitle of your book, um, how to challenge segregation enacted under the color of law and what you both said here about building biracial multi-ethnic coalitions. You have any advice for the New York State Legislature for this year on how to get closer to yes on a badly needed housing construction bill? Well, I think it starts by building support in our communities. Now, 20 million Americans turned out for Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 following George Floyd's murder. 20 million Americans is a lot of people. They were black and white, young and old. They were from suburbs as well as cities. And if we think that we can sort of, uh, if we can activate and reach those 20 million Americans, they went out to protest to march for Black Lives, and then they went home to put, you know, maybe lawn signs on their front lawns or maybe starting a book club to read about these issues. But then they didn't do much more. And we believe that they didn't do much more to really make Black Lives Matter because it's hard to know what to do. But one thing that they can do is support these kinds of measures to increase housing opportunities in these suburbs. You know, we're facing a housing crisis in part because of the efforts that tried to keep these inner ring and outer ring suburbs white. So they ensured that new housing couldn't be built in these communities to ensure that they stayed white and we we perpetuated and maintained a segregated society. So once we understand that history, we can activate all of the people who, you know, marched for Black Lives in 2020 and come out to support affordable housing measures, um, measures that increase housing supply, that reduce zoning restrictions against um, building a variety of housing in every community. And that's what we need to really meet the demand for housing right now and meet our obligation that we have to remedy the unconstitutional actions that created these segregated communities. They're connected. We can't forget that. You know, there's an old saying, I think it's actually an African proverb that goes, not to know is bad not to want to know is worse. And I wonder if there's something, Leah, in that concept that can be used to help build the allyship that you've been talking about. Yeah, you know, we live in a very segregated country. I don't think any anyone here, any of us can deny that. We all live in areas that are segregated by race, particularly whites and African-Americans living far apart from each other. If we look at that and think that that's just natural, that's just how it's supposed to be, that's just something we have no control over, then, you know, we have no obligation to do anything about it. We have no desire to learn how it came to be that way. And, you know, we also don't have to confront all of the consequences of that segregation. The the segregation of our country underlies our most serious social problems, health disparities, economic disparities, educational disparities. You know, those who grow up in segregated African-American communities have shorter life expectancies than those who grow up in white communities. So we're talking about quality of life, length of life. This isn't something we can ignore. And so, you know, willfully ignoring why we're segregated, what the consequences are, just ensures that we continue to perpetuate these issues and these problems. And, you know, they affect all of us. It's it's sort of, um, it's unwise to think that some of us can get out of the effects of segregation. And so once we confront that and start to learn about how it came to be, we start to see, you know, in reading, for example, The Color of Law, that the government had a huge role to play in this, took 
actions that were contrary to the Constitution. And when our government does that, we have an obligation to do something about it. And I think that, you know, the color of law was very popular around the country, I think partly because we didn't know about this history, you know, collectively. We had forgotten um, the way that the government um, created segregated communities. And once we kind of remember and reckon with that history, it it gives us an obligation to act. And so I think um, the so it's worse to not want not to want to know. Um, because then we just, we continue to perpetuate these problems and these issues and think that we have no role to play in fixing them. And one other thing on allyship, do you ever see your role in this movement as white people, if you consider yourself white people, in part being to leverage the interest and allyship of other white people, because it might be easier to relate to you? Richard? Definitely. Leah, go ahead. Uh, yes, <laughs> that was it. Go ahead. <laughs> Richard. Well, let, let, let me add that there's an enormous desire to know uh, in this country. Uh, I don't mean to boast, but The Color of Law sold over a million copies. It was on the bestseller list uh, for over a year. Uh, the readership was primarily as just because of numbers, whites, although large numbers of African-Americans read it as well, and they passed it around to friends and colleagues and neighbors and held book groups about it. People were stunned to learn this history and they were desperate to learn more. The reason we wrote Just Action was because so many people who read this book said, we didn't know this before. Why weren't we taught this in school? Why didn't we learn this in our classes? What can we do about it now? And that led to the book Just Action. So I think there's an enormous appetite in this country to learn things that have been hidden from them and, and forgotten and the that's uh, that's expressed by the readership of the color of law and by the interest in this new book just action which tells people how they can actually do something to remedy it richard and leah rothstein thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much thank you and that interview was originally for wnyc's martin luther king weekend event yesterday at the apollo theater Program note, we will also air a one-hour edit of other portions of the Apollo event at 2 o'clock this afternoon as a special edition of our program Notes from America with Kai Wright. Kai and guests from the Apollo event called The Inconvenient King coming up at 2 o'clock this afternoon here on WNYC.